Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on January 12, 2014. Today's message is Cheer Up by Dr. Lyle Shrag, based on the scripture reading. Now this morning I'm going to invite you uh, to join me by turning into the second chapter of the book of Haggai as you have your Bibles before you. Last week we <clears throat> looked at the first chapter together and now it's time for as Paul Harvey would have said, the rest of the story. So let me just take a moment to refresh your memory where we were. Uh, we're somewhere around the year 586 B.C. There, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar, after having conquered Israel and swept the children of God off to exile and imprisonment, an imprisonment and an exile that lasted approximately 70 years, uh, that Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And at the very end of Second Chronicles, we read that in the first year of the Persian rule, the Lord stirred up Cyrus, the uh, king of Persia, to issue an edict to free Israel, uh, to, to, to return them to their home, and with an order, just one order, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it was more than just a matter of a building for the sake of building a building. It was getting past some sort of religious obligation so that they could get on through their life. It was a matter of restoring their relationship with God. Now, building the temple was probably the most tangible way of actually getting God back into their lives and for them getting back on track with their relationship with God. Building the temple wasn't the matter of just brick and mortar. It was a matter of having a relationship where putting God at the very center of life would then begin to fill everything else with purpose and with meaning and, and with his presence from which all those things would flow. Wouldn't you like to live a life like that? Consider all the functions and the responsibilities that, that, that you perform each day at home, at, at work, caring for a family, pursuing a career. Wouldn't it be helpful to see in each act that God is present and that he is at work? And for that, there is a purpose. When God does occupy the center of your heart, he, he's there at the temple, your life does begin to flow. But as we open Haggai chapter 1, we discover that something had interrupted the flow. And you may remember from last week how Haggai is organized with a calendar in mind. And in verse 1 of chapter 1, we have a date, the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king, son of Cyrus, and that, as I gave you last uh, week, was August 29th of 520 B.C., which may sound like good trivia, except that it meant that years had passed uh, since the people had actually returned to the land and had then gone beyond just tinkering with a temple plan, and they had gotten diverted from that. You remember the message. I don't have to re-preach it again, I hope. They had their lives, they had their homes, they had their businesses, they did have some level of success, but as Haggai spoke in chapter 1, it was clear that something was missing. And in verse 6, you get an idea uh, that they were also living very frustrated lives. For there we read those words, you sow, little, you sow much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. There's something wrong, there's something missing. I think of the book written by Bob Buford Halftime, I mentioned it last week, and I wonder sometimes if our goal in life isn't really the pursuit of success where we do so 
where we do har- uh, uh, eat, where we do pursue a pursuit of success, but it should rather, in fact, be the pursuit of significance. A significance can really only be found in a relationship with the one who made you and makes you significant. Now, there's a little phrase in Haggai. It appears in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 7. It says, consider your ways. And I have to think that for you and me, as much as for the children of Israel in this time, this is always God's gracious invitation to us to get back on track with him. A second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, whatever it might be, to come back into a partnership with the Spirit of God and in that partnership find then the purpose and meaning that occurs even in the simplest of things. Well, by the end of Haggai chapter 1, the whole body of Israel decided to take that chance and to respond to the invitation. And as we left them, they were getting busy with the blessing Uh, of the most important four words that you will find in the entire book in verse 13. I am with you. That's what God said. I am with you, thus saith the Lord. Now, it is a bright picture that we ended with last week and is full of energy. The spirits are stirred, as it says in the Bible. I always get get excited whenever I see people stirred by the Spirit of God, but I also realize that it takes much more than just Initial excitement in order for people to live a life of long obedience. Is that not true? The good news is that God knows that that is true too. And so this morning as we come to chapter 2, we discover that that about a month has passed. And it is not hard to understand or even imagine that after that month had passed and the party had taken place, that the passion had begun to cool, that their ardor had somehow begun to wane, and the revival had somehow run in face-to-face with reality. Life is like that. Work can do that to you. Any commitment you make to be obedient, to serve, and to give of yourself does carry a price, and it doesn't take long to challenge that act of obedience. Now, this week I was trying to find a way to be able to prove the point And I was looking for uh, some sort of illustration uh, of how work affects enthusiasm. And I googled up the phrase, um, and you think your job is bad. And I got uh, 11.5 million hits on you think your job is bad. And I began to go through those stories. Uh, 11.5 million hits, the stories, uh, well, the stories go on and on, but I discovered very quickly that as a picture paints a thousand words, um, there are probably better pictures that would say more than a story could tell. And so I'd just like to be able to share a few with you. And I want you to think, as you see the pictures, as you see them on the screen, I want you to think of of, of a job like this and how it would just make your day day after day, and keep you excited. Oh, the pictures are already there. And I don't know if you can see it out there, but I'm getting vertigo looking at that. Oh, look at that. Is that you? It may feel like it. And then, of course, there's always another. Now, now, I look at those pictures, and I wonder to myself just how far things had gone. 
from the day in which the person had walked into the job interview really wanting a job and then being saying, you're hired. And they walked out and they said, woohoo, to suddenly this. And the headache commercial says it well, apply on directly to the forehead. Head on, apply directly to the forehead. Let's get real. Most of us know what it's like to grind out in a life of commitment and conviction every day under conditions like this. And it's not always very exciting, is it? You may have started out just like these children of God in in the book of Haggai with a heart of excitement and passion. You were stirred by the Spirit of God. And your first steps may have been bold and confident, but over the long run, you find that you need more than just passion to carry you through, don't you? The beautiful thing is that God knows that too. And he knows how prone we are to discouragement and to disillusionment and to disappointment. He knows. And in the knowing, he also cares. And that is why he comes. In Haggai chapter 2, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to the people. Now about a month has gone into the project, and over the course of the next two months then, in this second chapter, up to the 24th day of the ninth month, you'll see that in verse 20, God sends Haggai with three very specific words, three prophecies, and each one of them was intended to encourage his people and reach beyond just the people in Haggai to you and me as God's people with a promise that was intended to empower us to live lives of purpose and of meaning. So let's look at the very first of these in Haggai chapter 2. There we read, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. By the way, you're welcome for only having to read Psalm 46 this week. God bless you. God bless all of you. Okay. Speak to them and the remnant of the people and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? I want to stop there for just a second. It's not hard to really understand exactly what's happening here. This glorious house that is spoken of in verse 3 was Solomon's temple, a magnificent structure seen by some as one of the seven wonders of the world, a magnificent thing. And some of the people, some, The oldest, probably, may have been able to remember exactly what it looked like before it was destroyed. They could have closed their eyes and and they could have said to themselves, Ah, the good old days. And then they opened them up to see what was happening and you can imagine their reaction. What's this? It's nothing. Not compared to the good old days. The rest of the people, who may not have had a chance to see the temple, but sure had heard about it from their parents and grandparents, 
Those born in exile only had the stories of the former temple to work with. And you can imagine how they pictured it when they closed their eyes. It was probably even more glorious than it really was. Imagination does that. And you can imagine then what they saw when they opened their eyes and looked at their project and then thought to themselves, it'll never compare. It simply will never live up. Have you ever been uh, criticized by someone who remembers, or better yet, I imagine this is probably better, imagines the good old days? You know what it's like to have heard that criticism. Disillusionment, it comes and it weighs you down, especially when you look at what you're doing and you know what you're putting into it. And the comparison is what was or could be and what is leaves you feeling so inadequate and so inferior. And somewhere inside, a little voice is saying, you can't do it, so don't even bother. No matter what you do, it'll never be good enough. To which God says, so what? It's not about you. That's my translation. Look at verse 4. Be strong. Three times he says it, God does in his prophecy. Be strong, he says. Now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jehozadak. Be strong, all of you, declares the Lord, and work. Why? For I am with you. It's not about you. It is all about me. Thus saith the Lord. Again, my translation. Disillusionment makes you feel so all alone as if it's all in your hands and you're not up to the task. Where in reality, if you are living a life of obedience, God is with you. And God goes on to say in verse 5, I covenanted with you all the way back to Egypt. And that has not changed. My spirit remains among you. Do not give in to fear. Even more than that, he goes on to say, I am part of the work team. I am the one, he says here who can shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I am the one who fills the fruit of your labor with glory and makes it work as an art and treasure, gold and silver. I paraphrase that. Actually, those words in verse 7 may sound familiar to you. Do they sound familiar to you? George Handel used them in the Messiah with one of the most spectacular moments and the entire oratorio, that bass solo. And I, 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 I wish I could have done this last week because my cold allowed me to hit those low notes. I will shake the dry land, the heavens, I shake. You know, he goes on like that. It's a powerful moment. Did you, I... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Handel took these words, as they're found here in Haggai, but they're also found in Hebrews chapter 12 as a way to be able to describe how the kingdom of Christ does stand strong and is the only thing left standing when everything else has been plucked up and blown away in the day of judgment, which is incredibly ironic when you look at this. Because that magnificent temple of Solomon had passed away. It was destroyed. And yet, 
being with them, their simple work would reflect his glory. You may not see it now, but as God promises in verse 9, there will come a time when the glory of whatever labor you invest in, obedience to him, will be revealed in its true grandeur which may in fact be missing from other people's eyes at the moment. You understand what I'm saying? And so God says in verse 4, these words, take them to heart, be strong and work, for I am with you. This has got to bring comfort. It's comfort, brought comfort to me. It brings comfort to the heart of anyone who's chosen to step out in obedience to the living God, and to serve. I love the story that is told about Martin Luther. One of the themes of his life was an overwhelming sensitivity to holiness and to perfection. In fact, he was awakened to grace, really out of, of a fear for this holiness and perfection, that he might defile the service of communion and that somehow he wouldn't do it right the way others did and that in doing it wrong, he would let God down. And even though he was freed from that fear with the discovery of God's grace, he still carried the pressure for perfection and often fell into fits of depression. One day, after a prolonged period of depression, his wife dressed all in black and came down to prepare breakfast. As he walked in and he saw her all dressed in black, he looked at her in surprise and he said, Who died? And she bowed her head and she says, God has, amen. He looked at her in astonishment. He said, God has not died. And she looked at him and said, well then, act like it and live like it then. The first word of encouragement. Be strong and work, for I am with you. Thus saith the Lord. Word number one. In verse 10, two more months pass, and God sends Haggai with a second word to take to heart. Now this one is going to require a little bit of explanation. If you've read through it, you understand it's a little technical religiously. In fact, in verse 11, Haggai says that in order to understand what you're going to hear, you're going to have to bring in some experts. This is what the Lord says, he says, Ask the priests what the laws say. Bring in the experts. And then he asks two questions. So let me just read verse 12 and 13. <clears throat> Here are the two questions. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked food, wine, or any other oil or any other food, will it become holy? And the priests, the experts, said no. And in verse 13, then Haggai said, if... if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these latter, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it will become unclean. Now you might be reading that and thinking, what on earth are you going to get out of that, Lyle? Uh, Your Majesty, Dr. Schrag. It's really not as complicated as it sounds. Essentially, God here is dealing with the perfectionist in them and in all of the rest of us. Let's face this, there are those of us who like to think that what we do and what we produce 
will end up being flawless and perfect and in perfection holy as well. It is an ego sort of thing. And quite frankly, is the one ego sort of thing that is guaranteed to set you up for disappointment. A moment is going to come, a time is going to come when you realize that even at your very best, you are still only human. And that, by the way, is the point that is pressed home in verse 15 through 19. Back to verse 14. So it is with this people and this nation in my sight. So it is with humans, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. Whatever you do, you are not the one that makes it holy. God is. And that, by way, is a huge lesson to take in life. Learning the difference between excellence and perfection. Is that not true? God honors excellence when we give our very best and, and, and we're going to do it at the highest level possible. But he harbors no illusions about our perfection. It's not in us. Whatever I offer is defiled. And Before you sink in depression at the thought and think to yourself, will anything I do really make a difference? Look at verse 19. What makes such an effort worthwhile? What makes your life meaningful? What graces your ministry with a touch of heaven? Underline the last eight words of verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. Thus saith the Lord. In essence, what you cannot do, I can do. And when you realize that I am with you, then you can be assured that verse 19 is secure. I will bless you. I am the one who will make your efforts holy and worth that of the kingdom of heaven. There may be some days when you wonder, is what you do and what you invest in terms of time and effort, sweat and tears, really worth it? I love the story told by my friend Bill Hybels, and it's, to be honest, a story that I've heard from any number of pastors, and I've experienced it myself. But here's his story. He got a call one day to go to lunch with one of the businessmen in his church, and it was apparent that something was really troubling the man. And finally, Bill asked him at the, at the lunch, he says, okay, why are we here? Is something wrong? And the man looked at Bill and said, look, <clears throat> I decided to take your challenge seriously to invest my time, my treasure, and my talents to God. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad to have done it. But everywhere I turn, I'm getting the same thing. I'm treating my employees as I think Jesus would, and they think I'm crazy. My accountant looks at my donations that I'm giving in my offering, and he tells me that I'm crazy. My partner found out what I'm doing in my free time with ministry and work in the church and now mission strips, and he thinks I'm crazy. And my family, the attention I'm giving them, well, they think I've lost my mind. I guess what I need to do is sit down with someone who understands me and can tell me I am not crazy. I've carried that story to heart over the years, and I've discovered that one of the most important ministries that any of us could ever have is to simply look at each other eye to eye and say, as you are living a life in obedience to his call, I respect that. I honor that. And you are not 
crazy. You are not crazy. Isaac, look at me. You are not, well, let me think about that. (laughs) You are not crazy. You are not crazy. And I honor you. And I respect you. For God knows you. And God takes you in hand. We can do that with each other. And that's nice, but it's really just an echo of what God has to say. And sometimes it helps to hear God repeat that as a promise. From this day forward, I will bless you. For I am with you. I will bless you. And with that, God says, I will be the one who will make what you do eternally worthwhile. What good words of encouragement. I'm with you. I will bless you. One more word. Later in the day, <clears throat> that very same day, God has Haggai take Zerubbabel aside for a private word in verse 20 and verse 21. Why? I'm not sure. Maybe because as leaders of, of this he needed to say something more to them for the task at hand, that, that they were going to be carrying extra burdens of leadership. One thing I'm sure of, he needed to know what God was, was really interested in, these guys did. They needed to know what God was really interested in as a result of this project. They really needed to know what, what was the measurement of the final product. So follow me carefully. Once again, we have a vision of the end of times when the heavens and the earth shake and everything, power structures, military forces, they all topple before the Lord. And it's at that moment, then, when God reveals what is most important to him in verse 13. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I, I, I want to pause right there. God's greatest desire is the worker, not the work. He doesn't say, on that day, I will then take occupancy of the temple. Thank you very, very much. Now on your way. He says, I will take you. Why? And he goes on to say, because I have made you like my signet ring. I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now let me repeat that. God's greatest desire is not what you do, but who you are and what you become because of him. What are they becoming? He says, I have made you like my signet ring. Your obedience, your service, your sacrifice, your reliance upon blessing and faithfulness, even your sleepless nights, all have served to polish you to a fine sheen like a jewel that God then takes and places in that place of honor. And at the end of days, he looks at his own and says, I've chosen you. I really do love you. 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 We sometimes lose sight of that. We grind our way then through our obligations, whether they be at work or at home or in church. I got a kick out of a story that was told by Mark Buchanan. Told of one of the worship leaders in his church at Duncan. Her name is Tracy, and she was at her wit's end, having endured a week of disaster that included a car accident, the uh, the resignation of a key worker, and she confessed 
that she had seriously considered throwing in the towel, just quitting and leaving, but decided to make it through just one more Sunday, but at the end of that day, that would be it. She had nothing more to give. So on that Sunday morning, she, as she got ready to leave the house, her eight-year-old daughter, Brenna, had begun to pester her. Have you looked outside today, she said. Have you looked outside today? Have you seen the sunshine? She dragged her mother into the living room, and in frustration, she looked out through the living room window, but in her horror, saw that someone had smeared crayon all over the window. Wonderful. Another disaster. But before the last straw snapped, she began to notice something about the crayon marks. Apparently, little Brenna, eight-year-old Brenna, sensing her mother's discouragement, had awoken earlier and, and with childlike care had taken her crayons to the window and had written, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, spelled K-I-N-D-N-E-C-E, okay. Goodness, also N-E-C-E. Faithfulness, N-E-C-E. Gentleness, self, S-A-L-F, control. Complete with the misspellings. And the sunlight danced itself through the different colors of the crayon, almost turning it into something like stained glass. And on one edge, Tracy noticed that Brenna had underlined three words. Love one another. Only the word one was spelled differently. Instead of being spelled O-N-E, it was spelled W-O-N. Love one another. And Tracy was the other. As Tracy confessed, the spelling was just right. She had been one all over again simply by the love of God. I would like to think that as the book of Haggai came to the close, love won Zerubbabel, love won Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, love won all the rest of the remnant of those people, And I would like to think that as you hear the words yourself, you would know them to be true for you just as well, that God loves you. So let me bring it to close and do it with a few timeless truths. According to the word of God, Haggai chapter 1, God calls you to live a life of purpose and meaning. Do not get distracted. Get back on track. Let God stir up your spirit as you you obediently take up that work he's given you to do. And then finally, out of Haggai chapter 2, take heart. Take heart. Cheer up. Take heart. Every single one of those words this morning, every single one of them, you'll notice, were also repeated by Jesus, the one who loved you and gave himself for you. You, I am with you. I will bless you. I have chosen you. You are mine. Take heart. Let us pray. And gracious Heavenly Father, I would thank you. 
You have not set us alone in this world. Lord, you have brought us together with you, for you are our maker, and Lord, you are the one who knows how to make life full. And fill it with a meaning, Lord, that that resounds through the days and through the ages, and Lord, allows us that partnership with, with eternity. Speak to our hearts right now and encourage us in the way that only you can do and in the way only we really need. Let us know that you are with us, that you bless us, and that you take us to yourself as treasures. And with that, Lord, we, we give ourselves to you freely and willingly and eagerly in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.